Chapter 96 of Consuelo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Consuelo by George Sand. Chapter 96. After the insinuation which she had so recently hazarded respecting Consuelo, the sight of the good cannon produced upon Carilla the effect of a Medusa's head. She took courage, however, on reflecting that she had spoken in Venetian, and she saluted him with that mixture of effrontery and embarrassment which characterizes women of Carilla's description. The cannon, usually so polished and graceful a host, neither rose nor even returned her salute. Carilla, who had made particular inquiries respecting him at Vienna, was informed by everyone that he was a man of exquisite breeding, a great amateur in music, and incapable of lecturing any woman, and least of all, a celebrated singer. She had therefore planned to go to see him, and as it were fascinate him into silence. But if she had more cleverness in invention and intrigue than Consuelo, she had also the careless, disorderly habits, the indolence, and even the slatterliness, for all these qualities are generally found united, characteristic of low and groveling minds. Bodily and mental slothfulness neutralized the efforts of intrigue, and Carilla, though capable of any perfidy, had rarely sufficient energy to turn it to good account. She had therefore put off from day to day her visit to the cannon, and when she found him so cold and severe, she began to be visibly disconcerted. Then, seeking to recover herself by a bold stroke, she said to Consuelo, who held Angela in her arms, Well, why don't you let me embrace my daughter and lay her at his reverence, the canon's feet, that? Dame Carilla, said the canon, in the same dry and coldly satirical tone in which he had formerly said, Dame Bridget, have the goodness to let that child alone. Then expressing himself in Italian with much elegance, although rather too slowly, he thus continued, without removing his cap from his head. During the fifteen minutes I have been listening to you, although I am not very familiar with your patois, I have understood enough to warrant me in telling you that you are by far the most shameless creature I ever met with in my life. Nevertheless, I believe you more stupid than wicked, more base and cowardly than dangerous. You comprehend nothing of the beauty of virtue, and it would be only a waste of time to attempt to make you comprehend it. I have merely one thing to say to you, that young girl, that spotless virgin, that saint, as you called her just now in mockery, you pollute by speaking to her. Therefore speak not to her again. As to this child which was born of you, you would disgrace it by your touch. Therefore touch it not. An infant is a holy being. Consuelo has said it, and I felt the truth of her words. It was from the intercession, the persuasion of Consuelo, that I ventured to take charge of your daughter without a fear that the perverse instincts she might have inherited from you would one day make me repent it. We said to each other that divine goodness gives to every creature the power of knowing and practicing what is good, and we resolved to teach her what is good and to make the path of virtue pleasant and easy to her. With you it would be far otherwise. From this day, therefore, you will no longer consider this child as yours. You have abandoned it, seated it, given it away. It no longer belongs to you. 
you remitted a sum of money to pay for its education. Here he made a sign to the gardener's wife, who took from the wardrobe a purse tied and sealed, the same which Carilla had sent to the cannon with her daughter, and which had not been opened. He took it and threw it at Carilla's feet, adding, We will have nothing to do with it and do not want it. In the meantime, I request you to leave my house and never to set foot in it again under any pretext whatever. On these conditions, and provided you never utter a word respecting the circumstances which have forced us into a connection with you, we promise to observe the most absolute silence respecting all that concerns you. But if you act otherwise, I warn you that I have means which you know not of, of letting Her Imperial Majesty hear the truth, and you may suddenly exchange your theatrical crown and the applause of your admirers for a residence of some years in a Magdalene asylum. Having thus spoken, the canon rose, signed to the nurse to take the child, and motioned to Consuelo to retire with Joseph to the other end of the apartment. He then pointed with his finger to the door, and Carilla, pale, trembling, terrified, tottered out, hardly knowing where she went or what she did. The canon during this outburst had been inspired with a feeling of honest and manly indignation which had rendered him unusually forcible. Consuelo and Joseph had never before seen him so powerful. The authoritative habits which never abandon a priest and also the attitude of royal command which is to some extent hereditary and which in this instance proclaimed him the son of Augustus II invested the canon, possibly without his being aware of it, with a sort of irresistible majesty. Carilla, who for the first time in her life heard herself addressed in the calm and severe accents of truth, felt more terror and affright than all of her furious lovers in their revengeful outbursts had ever inspired her with. An Italian and superstitious, she felt a vivid terror of the ecclesiastic and his curse, and fled in a distracted manner across the garden, while the canon, exhausted by an effort so unusual to his calm and benevolent character, fell back in his chair, pale and almost fainting. While hastening to his assistance, Consuelo involuntarily cast a glance at the uncertain and tottering steps of the unfortunate Carilla. Whether it was that the wretched woman missed her footing in the agitation, or that her strength became exhausted, she saw her stumble at the end of a walk, and fall prostrate upon the ground. The lesson was a severer one than Consuelo's kind heart would have been able to inflict, and leaving the cannon to the care of Joseph, she ran to aid her rival, whom she found struggling in a violent fit of hysterics. Unable to calm her and not daring to bring her to the priory, she was obliged to limit her endeavors to preventing her from rolling on the walk or tearing her hands with the gravel. Carilla was almost deranged for some moments, but when she saw who was assisting and trying to console her, she became calm and deadly pale. She kept her livid lips closed in a gloomy silence and her eyes immovably fixed upon the ground. She suffered Consuelo, however, to lead her to the carriage which waited at the gate, and supported by her rival, she entered it without uttering a word. "'You are very ill,' said Consuelo, frightened at the expression of her countenance. Permit me to accompany you a part of the way. I can return on foot. Carilla's only reply was to thrust her back while she looked at her with an indefinable expression. 
Then sobbing aloud, she hid her face with one of her hands, while with the other she signed to the coachman to proceed, at the same time pulling down the blind between herself and her generous enemy. Next day being the last rehearsal of Antigone, Consuelo was at her post at the appointed hour, and they only awaited the arrival of Carilla to commence. The latter sent her servant to say that she would be there in half an hour. Caffariello consigned her to the infernal regions, affirming with an oath that he would not submit to the caprice of any such person, and that he was determined not to wait a moment longer. Madame Tessie, although pale and suffering, had determined to be present at the rehearsal in order to amuse herself at Corella's expense, and for this purpose she had dragged herself to the theater and now lay reclining at full length on a sofa, which she had caused to be placed at one end of the side scenes. She calmed her friend and persisted in awaiting Carilla's arrival, thinking that it was from fear of being controlled by her that she hesitated to appear. At last Carilla arrived, paler and more languishing than Tessie herself, who on her side regained her color and strength on seeing her rival in such a plight. In place of throwing off her hat and mantle in her usual saucy fashion, she seated herself on a gilt throne which had been forgotten on the stage, and thus addressed Holtzbauer. Mr. Director, I beg to tell you that I am exceedingly unwell, that my voice is completely gone, and that I have passed a frightful night. Tessie languidly interchanged a malicious glance with Caffariello, and that, for all these reasons, it is impossible for me either to rehearse today or sing tomorrow, unless I resume the part of Ismenia, and you give that of Berenice to another. Is this really your intention, madam? exclaimed the thunderstruck Holtzbauer. Is it on the eve of representation, and when the court has fixed the hour, that you would allege indisposition? It is impossible. I can by no means consent to it. You must, however, replied she, resuming her natural tone of voice, which was anything but gentle. I am only engaged for second-rate parts, and nothing in my engagement obliges me to take the first. It was a feeling of civility on my part which induced me to accept them in order to oblige Signora Tessie, and not to interrupt the pleasures of the court. I am too ill to keep my promise, and you cannot oblige me to sing against my will. My dear friend, they will make you sing by command, said Caffariello, and you will sing badly. We were perfectly prepared for it. It is but a trifling misfortune in addition to those which you have so often confronted, but it is too late to draw back. You should have thought about it sooner. You have presumed too much upon your abilities. You will break down, but that is of little importance to us. I will sing in such a way that the audience will forget that there is even such a part as Berenice. Porporina also, in her little part of Ismenia, will compensate the public, and every one will be satisfied except yourself. It will be a lesson which you will profit by, or rather which you will not profit by another time. You much deceive yourself as to the motives of my refusal, replied Carilla boldly. Were I not unwell, I should perhaps perform my part as well as another. But, as I cannot sing, there is one present who will sing the part better than it ever was sung at Vienna and that no later than tomorrow. So the opera will not be put off, and I shall resume with pleasure the part of Ismenia, which will not fatigue me. 
What, said Holzbauer, affecting surprise, do you suppose that Madame Tessie will be well enough tomorrow to resume her part? I know very well that Madame Tessie cannot sing for a long time, said Corella aloud, so that Tessie could hear her from her sofa, which was not ten paces distant. See how changed she is. Her face would frighten one. But I told you that you had a Berenice, a perfect, incomparable Berenice, superior to us all. And there she is, added she, rising and taking Consuelo by the hand and leading her into the midst of the turbulent group which had collected around her. I, exclaimed Consuelo, as if waking from a dream. You, replied Carilla, pushing her upon the throne, almost with a convulsive effort. You are now our queen, Porporina. Your place is in the first rank. It is I who give it you, for I owe it to you. Never forget it. Holtzbauer, in the midst of his distress, and seeing himself on the point of failing in his duty, and perhaps being obliged to send in his resignation, was unable to refuse this unexpected aid. It was obvious enough to him from Consuelo's performance of Ismenia that if she undertook the part of Berenice, she would perform it in a superior manner. In spite, therefore, of his repugnance toward Porpora and toward her, his only fear was that she would refuse the part. She did, in fact, refuse it very earnestly, and cordially, pressing Corilla's hands, she warmly entreated her, in a low tone, not to incur for her sake a sacrifice which would not gratify her, while to her rival it would afford the greatest triumph, and would seem an act of the most humble submission that could be tendered. But Corilla was immovable in her determination. Tezzi, frightened at a junction which threatened such serious consequences to her, would have willingly attempted to resume her part should she even expire the moment after, for she was seriously indisposed, but she dared not do so. They were not suffered at the court theater to manifest those caprices to which the good-natured public of our day so patiently submits. The court expected something new in the part of Berenice. This had been announced, and the empress reckoned on it. Come, said Caffariello to Porporina, you must decide. This is the first trait of common sense that Corella has ever shown in her life. Let us take advantage of it. But I do not know the part, said Consuelo. I have not studied it. I cannot have it prepared for tomorrow. You have heard it, therefore you know it, and you can sing it tomorrow, thundered Porpora. Come, no faces. Let there be an end of the matter. We are only losing time, Mr. Director. You will instruct the orchestra to begin. And then, Berenice, to your place. Come lay down that music. When the piece has been rehearsed three times, everyone ought to know it by heart. I tell you, you know it. No, Tuto, O Berenice, sang Corilla, becoming Ismenia again. Tu non apri il tuo cor. And now, thought Corilla, who judged of Consuelo by herself, all that she knows of my adventures will appear nothing in her eyes. Consuelo, with whose wonderful powers Papora was well acquainted, sang her part, both music and words, without hesitation. Madame Tessie was so struck with her performance that she found herself much worse and had herself conveyed home after the rehearsal of the first act. Next day Consuelo had prepared her costume, gone over her striking positions, as well as repeated the whole by five o'clock in the evening. Her success was so complete that the emperor said, on leaving the theater, that is really an admirable girl. I must positively marry her. I will see about it. 
Next day, the Zenobia of Mestasasio, the music by Prideri, was put in rehearsal. Carrillo still persisted in handing over the part of Prima Donna to Consuelo. Madame Holtzbauer took the second part, and as she was a better musician than Carrillo, the opera went off much better than the other. Metastasio was delighted to find his music, which had been somewhat neglected during the wars, once more regained favor and become the rage in Vienna. He no longer thought of his sufferings, and urged both by the kindness of Maria Theresa and the duties of his place to write new lyric dramas, he prepared himself by the perusal of the Greek and Latin classics to produce one of those masterpieces which the Italians of Vienna and the Germans of Italy unhesitatingly preferred to the works of Corneille, Shakespeare, Racine, or Calderon. It is not here, amid these perhaps tedious details, that we shall weary the reader's patience by giving him our opinion of Metastasio. It matters little to him what that opinion may be. We shall merely repeat what Consuelo said privately to Joseph on the subject. My poor Beppo, you cannot imagine the difficulty I have in performing those parts which they tell us are so sublime and pathetic. The words, to be sure, are well arranged and present themselves readily in singing, but when I think of the personage who utters them, I do not know where to find, not inspiration, but even gravity sufficient to pronounce them. How strange a mistake it is to ascribe the notions of the present day to antiquity and to describe passions, intrigues, and morals, very apropos perhaps in the memoirs of a Margrave of Barath, a Baron Trenck, or a Princess of Kalmbach, but meaningless and absurd with such characters as Radamistas, Berenice, or Arsinoe. When I was a convalescent at the Castle of the Giants, Count Albert often read to me to put me to sleep. But so far from sleeping, I listened most attentively. He read the tragedies of Sophocles, Aeschylus, or Euripides, translating them into Spanish without hesitation or obscurity, although it was a Greek text which was before him. He was so conversant with all the different languages, both ancient and modern, that you would have said he read from an excellent translation. He piqued himself on rendering the shades of meaning exactly, that I might become acquainted with the genius of the Greeks. Heavens, what grandeur, what images, what sobriety, and yet what poetry of thought, what energetic as well as pure and lofty characters, what striking situations, what deep sorrows, what terrible and harrowing pictures he displayed before my rapt and wandering eyes. Still weak and nervous from my severe illness, I imagined while listening to him that I was by turns Antigone, Clymnestra, Medea, and Electra, not on the stage by the light of footlamps, but in frightful solitudes on the threshold of yawning caverns amid the columns of ancient temples, or beside dreary watchfires where they wept the dead and conspired against the living. I heard the wailing of the Trojan women, the cries of the captives of Dardania. The humanities danced around me, but to what wild and fantastic music and infernal cries! Even yet I cannot think of it without a thrill of mingled pain and pleasure which makes me shudder. Never in the theater or in the waking realities of life shall I experience the same emotions, the same power as then sounded like the mutterings of the distant thunderstorm through my heart and brain. It was then that I first felt myself a tragedian, 
then first that I conceived types of excellence of which no artist had furnished me with a model. It was then that I comprehended the tragic drama, the poetry of the theater, and as Albert read, I composed a strain of music which seemed to express and utter all that I heard. Sometimes I assumed the attitude and expression of the heroines of his drama, and he would then pause, terrified, thinking he saw Andromache or Ariadne before him. Oh, I learned more from those readings in a month than I should all my life repeating the dramas of Metastasio, and if there were not more sense and feeling in the music than in the words, I should break down under the disgust which I feel in making the Archduchess Zenobia converse with the Landgrave Egli, and in hearing the Field Marshal Rodomistus dispute with Zopyrus the Cornet of Pandors. Oh, it is false, Beppo, false as a light periwig of Caffariello Teradates, as a pompadour dishabille of Madame Holtzbauer, the shepherdess of Armenia, as the pink calves of Prince Demetrius, or as yonder scenic decorations, which from this distance bear about as strong a resemblance to Asia as the Abbe Metastasio does to old Homer. What you have just said, replied Hayden, enables me to understand why I feel so much more hope and inspiration when I think of composing oratorios and in writing operas for the theater. In the former, where scenic artifice does not contradict the truth of the sentiment, and where, in an atmosphere all music, soul speaks to soul by the ear and not by the eye, the composer, methinks, is able to develop all his inspiration and to carry the imaginations of his auditors into the loftiest regions of thought. Thus conversing, Joseph and Consuelo, while waiting for the rehearsal, walked side by side along an enormous sheet of canvas, which was that evening to be the river Araxis, but which by the indistinct daylight of the theater presented only the appearance of an enormous stripe of indigo running between huge stains of okra, intended to represent the mountains of Caucasus. These scenes, as everyone knows, are placed one behind the other so as to be rolled up on cylinders whenever the locality of the drama changes. During the day, the actors walk up and down in the space between them, repeating their parts or conversing on their private affairs, and sometimes spying out the little confidential communications or deep-laid machinations of their fellow actors, who are perhaps separated from them by an arm of the sea or some public building, while the scene-shifters, sitting or crouching in the dust under the dripping oil, nod lazily on their posts or exchange pinches of snuff with each other. Happily, Metastasio was not on the opposite banks of the Araxes, while the unsuspecting Consuelo thus vented her artistic indignation to Hayden. The rehearsal commenced. It was the second of Zenobia, and all went on so well that the musicians, according to custom, applauded by tapping the violins with the end of their bows. Prideri's music was charming, and Porpora directed it with more enthusiasm than he was able to command for that of Haas. The part of Tiridates was one of Caffariello's triumphs and would have been well conceived if he had not been equipped as a Parthian warrior while the composer made him warble like Celadon or chatter like Clytander. Consuelo, although finding her part poor and mean when placed in the mouth of a heroine of antiquity, was at least pleased with the agreeable feminine cast of the character 
It even seemed to suggest a sort of similarity to her own situation between Albert and Anzalito. And forgetting the localities and thinking only of the human sentiments expressed, she felt raised to a pitch of sublimity in this air, whose force and meaning had so often been present to her heart. Voy leget in ogni cor, voy supit auguste dei. Si mon puri, voti mie, si innocent et la pite. She possessed at this instant the consciousness of true emotion and well-deserved triumph. She did not need Caffariello's look, uninfluenced that day by Tessie's presence, to confirm what she already felt, namely her capacity to produce an irresistible effect on any audience, and under all circumstances, by so exquisite a union of melody and execution. She immediately became reconciled to her part, to the opera, to her associates, to herself, in a word to the theater, and notwithstanding all the sarcasms which she had so recently lavished on her calling, she could not help experiencing one of those deep-seated, hidden, and powerful emotions which it is impossible for anyone but an artist to comprehend, and which compensate in an instant for whole years of toil, suffering, and disappointment. End of chapter 96, read by Bryce Cries, Youngstown. December 6, 2021.